Hey, Unexplained Ones, this is Dr. Mounts, and thanks for tuning in to All Things Unexplained, where we talk about everything from Bigfoot to UFOs to astrophysics and everything in between. So if that sort of thing is for you, make sure to follow us wherever you podcast, along with a review and a rating. It takes a lot to get All Things Unexplained on the air, and this podcast is made possible by listeners like you. You can support the show by checking us out on Linktree at A-T-U Podcast. That's A-T-U Podcast. There you'll find links to all our socials. You can support us on Venmo. You can purchase your official All Things Unexplained merchandise. And you can even book us on Cameo. And now, let's get to the show. Previously on All Things Unexplained. When I regained consciousness, I was in such pain that it would actually sort of knock me back out again, the pain. I knew something was terribly wrong with my body. I could move, but it was so difficult. But I felt I was probably safe in a hospital, that I was being taken care of. There was some sort of device across my chest. I had a lot of pain in my chest. I could hear the sounds of movement around me, and I just took this to be doctors. Then when I looked in the direction of the movement sounds, I could see forms that I thought were doctors wearing surgical caps and, and masks. So when I sharpened the focus in my eyes, I could see that was not the case. I was looking into the face of this creature. Then I knew I was in very great danger. And here this face was so close to me, another right behind him. The fear gave me the strength to raise my arm. It pushed the, the one that was standing close to me back, and he fell into the other one. I was rolling away from him, and this object across my chest fell off. I got on my feet and staggered back, and I bumped up against a shelf, and there was an array of instruments laying out there. I just glanced, grabbed the biggest thing I could find, and started flailing in their direction to keep them from coming any closer. That moment was the focus of my nightmares for months afterward. They stopped with their hands extended towards me, and staring in a way that felt invasive and intrusive, like they were looking inside of me. It was horrible. I came to realize that it had to do with the stare, and the stare was them trying to reassert control, I think. Once it was apparent they weren't going to physically or even telepathically control me, they turned and left the room and uh, went to the right. And so I went in the opposite direction that they had gone. Were they behind me? Were they pursuing me? Or was around this tight curve that I couldn't see more than a few feet ahead, uh, was I gonna run into something worse? Adding to the panic was this feeling of suffocation. This feeling I was about to pass out from lack of air. I came to a doorway and looked in I was fearful of the chair in the middle. It was a high back chair, and I was afraid there could be someone sitting in it. So when I moved to the side and could see that there was no one in it, then I moved towards the chair. And it was then that I realized that the closer I came to the center of the room, the walls, the floor, the ceiling were darkened except for points of light. It was a planetarium kind of a projection. My main concern was open these doors. I assumed that perhaps the the buttons that were on the arm of this chair might open the door. That moved the star pattern. I was already unsteady on my feet. I turned and there was a, a man in the door. He had this glass helmet over his head. 
I started towards him, battling questions and trying to tell him about these breaches that were there. He took me by the arm and was leading me out. We went through what I think was a, an airlock. You know, this door closed and that door opened and we went out. At this point, the craft we came out of was parked inside of this big hangar-like building or it might have been part of a larger craft. He led me towards the vertical wall opposite this, through some doors, down a hallway, into a room where there were some other people. They were very similar to him. A similar dress, similar coloring, light-colored hair, light-colored eyes. They're leading me, taking me by the arm and putting me over towards this table. Uh, I was in a weakened condition, but I felt their strength. But still, the panic I had at being restrained like that, I was able to jerk one hand free. And they put this mask over my face, and I got my finger under the edge of that, trying to pull it away. But before I could pull it away, boom, I was out. All Things Unexplained, hosted by Dr. Mounts. Let's face it, we were always ready to roll without him anyway. <laughs> CJ Derringer. Ain't nobody perfect, right? And Smitty Neves. I've never planned out hardly anything my whole life. I just free ball. Featuring Cajun Man. I'm just old nobody, somebody looking for somebody. We have Travis Walton joining us via phone now, and suddenly I feel a lot like Art Bell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 it's just my own thinking, but, you know, I had a theory that, uh, you know, they, they refer to the aliens as humanoid, and a lot of people think, oh, that means resembling humans. No. Humanoid means two arms, two legs, a head on top, you know, two arms, uh, two hands, and... And to me, that's the most likely uh, thing that's going to result in something that can manipulate matter, make machinery, and, and you know, you're not going to have a, a slug make a machine. You're not going to have a giant uh, cockroach uh, make a UFO. It's just, it's just not the way you w you would uh, develop something that can. Uh, manipulate matter to uh, you know create craft to come here that's just just my own thinking just biologically um, um, the pressure to be formed that way would probably be so wide that you could have a variety of species all very similar in overall form uh, coming here and be and, and, and matter of fact, some could even look very much alike and actually come from different planets and um, develop independently. And, the, you know, in support of that, we have things here on the Earth. We have the American Flying Squirrel. In Australia, you have the Sugar Glider. Now, they've developed completely separate. Now, the Sugar Glider is still a marsupial, but the strategy for moving from tree to tree and that sort of thing is the same. And there's a number of other species where you have them developing completely independently uh, here in similar environments and, and uh, 
ending up with very similar forms. So do you have a feeling, Travis, for the human-like creatures that you saw at the time or now, a feeling if they were indeed human or just a humanoid alien of sorts? Well, uh, you know, uh, at the time, I took it to be human rescuers, uh, rescuing me from these horrible monsters, you know. But now, in retrospect, I think that they realized that I was not going to be cooperative unless I had something more familiar. Now, whether they enlisted the help of actual earthlings um, or a species similar to us or were somehow able to quickly simulate beings or the illusion of beings that would uh, get me to cooperate and lead me to where I could be uh, rendered unconscious again. Mm, so possibly even some shape-shifting happening. Possibly. What do you think their intention was with you? Well, at the time, I was just horrified by it and was you know, totally terrified. It was totally a negative experience. But in retrospect, I'm thinking probably the intention was to correct this accident that happened, that I had been injured oh. by getting too close and that they had the technology to repair the damage, but uh, the damage was so extensive that they couldn't even uh, employ uh, mind control or hypnosis or you know the, uh, telepathy to, to get cooperation. So um, uh, I was getting no messages of that sort from them. So. Uh, in order to get me unconscious to where they could do the procedures necessary to uh, save my life, uh, they they got something that looked human to me. Wow. We um, So it sounds like they were indeed trying to help you. Your initial thought of, hey, these are people trying to help me is now you have other species that are trying to help you. For those of you that are tuning in, we do have Travis Walton on the phone now. We are so thankful that he's joining us via the phone. We have heard your story from Jennifer. She told it very eloquently and uh, with lots of intensity, so we're grateful for that. We have been curious. Tim and I were talking about this just the other day. Have you had any other encounters or experiences since this one? Well, um, nothing to report. <laughs> I've tried to stick <laughs> to uh, events and sightings and anything of that sort that would uh, uh, be provable, you know, multiple witnesses, that sort of thing. So other than uh, one uh, encounter uh, after departing a, um, a Burbank MUFON event on the way home, um, now, whether that was um, alien or not, all I can say is a giant black triangle sped towards us at an unbelievable speed, stopped directly over the top of us. And, you know, in a city the size of Los Angeles, uh, that's an amazing coincidence, <laughs> at which point it um, stopped, turned to the right, and headed out to sea. Very incredible speed, incredibly huge uh, black triangle. 
Now, if this was some um, uh, United States military uh, secret weapon of some sort, and they wanted me to report it, uh, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> as such, knowing that I had just departed the Burbank MUFON meeting where Jan Harzan had just spoken. He had just recently becoming the head of MUFON. And uh, Tracy Torme, who was the screenwriter on Fire in the Sky, had also spoken. And so um, I probably wouldn't even report it uh, with the three of us seeing that, except that by the next morning, my oldest son had found a website where, uh, you know, more than 15 other people had witnessed the same thing um, separately, uh, totally separately. You know, it was set up kind of like Google Maps where you've got little circles and numbers. And all these different people saw the same craft uh, at that time. And I didn't take a picture, uh, much to my chagrin. But I, I look forward to possibly contacting the other dozen or so people who uh, saw it too, and hopefully somebody got a picture of some sort. Do you recall what year that was? Yeah, I have the exact date. Um, it was on or about my son's birthday, who was driving, and um, the 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 date of course would be on the record as to who was speaking at uh, Burbank MUFON when uh, you know Jan Harzan had just recently become um, the head of the organization. No, was, was this 90, several years ago or the recently? Oh, okay. Yeah, it was ninety something. Okay. I only asked because we've had many people come on our show and mention that when they see UFOs above, all of their technology goes out. But our technology is very different now than it was in the 90s, so that's not necessarily a pertinent question. Well, it didn't interrupt the functioning of the vehicle. My son said, Dad, should we pull over? And I said, no, keep going. And I was (laughs) embarrassed that I I, I would have thought that I would have been more recovered and in terms of being uh, able to, you know, pull over and take a picture. But uh, I, uh, I, the fear that gripped me was uh, um, surprising to me. Powerful. The I'm sure that the one time of getting out of the car and walking to see more and what happened after that has certainly stopped you. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I learned my lesson, you know, to be be more cautious. So, Travis, did this experience change your outlook spiritually in terms of what you believed and what you currently believe now? Well, definitely, of course, it, you know, confirmed my belief. I think the most likely explanation is that these were extraterrestrials. Some people say, well, what if it was something simulated that the military was doing? Well, that's not impossible, but I think it's a lot less likely, especially since people don't understand, uh, you know. To me, I, I would challenge the people who say that, you know, there's nothing else in the universe. Give me a break. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now that astronomers give us a lot more information about what's out there, 
the idea that we would be alone in the universe, the only planet supporting life, that's the preposterous uh, claim. Um, There are literally trillions, not just of of, um, stars, but entire galaxies. Mm-hmm. They they pointed the, the the camera on this recent um, um, improved telescope at the most empty space in the sky that they could, and um, magnified, detected literally hundreds of galaxies. Now the galaxies is like the Milky Way, an entire mm-hmm. of, um, millions of stars. So, and one other thing that NASA has recently been more affirmative of is that, see, they had this thing called the, um, it, was a, it was a theory about, um, I can't think of the name of it right now, but um, the Blake Equation, something like that. Anyway, uh, they, they had formulated a, a, a a way to calculate the number of possible uh, life-supporting planets in, in the, solar, yes. in the um, galaxy. Well, now uh, with greater techniques to observe planets, they, they uh, say it's a virtual certainty that every star has about a dozen planets. Mm-hmm. So the numbers you would plug Drake, into, the, into the, the Drake equation, yes. The numbers you would plug into the Drake equation would be enormously greater than what was previously thought because they were trying to be conservative and say, well, maybe one one star in 10 has a habitable uh, Goldilocks zone. You know, obviously some of the planets are going to be close to the star and way too hot and some will be too far out, not getting enough energy to support life. But uh, now uh, that middle, middle zone is so um certain to to come about that um, they figure that there are literally billions of planet uh, uh, planets right. that support life now I make the point that just because they support life doesn't mean they're all going to be coming here I mean you know what we had 50 million years that this planet was dominated by dinosaurs and it was just kind of uh, unfortunate for them that they got killed off and allowed for humans to come along. But, you know, we've only been here, you know, a few tens of thousands of years. Nothing compared to the 50 million years of dinosaurs running around on this planet. So uh, these life-supporting planets out there might not all be supporting, uh, you know, bipedal uh, humanoids. But right. still, the numbers are are. Astronomical to coin it. Coin it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they certainly yeah. are, yes. Yeah. And um, I believe that's the James Webb telescope you were talking about that got those recent shots, those recent images. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that'll make you feel small, right? Billions of of stars yes, like billions, our sun, billions of uh, stars. I make the point like that, you know, system. some of them. Some of these aliens out there are, are, are not advanced. Some of them are like cave aliens. <laughs> the, right. the, uh, the time frame of their development varies tremendously. Some of them, though, could be many millions of years older than us. And 
look how far we've come in a few thousand years. You know, a few thousand years ago, the greatest technology we had was fire, and not much more than mm-hmm. you know, chipping rocks and, and building fires. So, right. um, how far we've come just in the last hundred or two hundred years in terms of technology? If you imagine that multiplied by millions of life-supporting beings out there that have had millions of years to refine technology. Um, I think the the so-called scientific uh, skepticism that, well, maybe they exist, but they could never get here. Um, It's pretty arrogant and presumptuous to... uh, put themselves in the position of second guessing uh, what technology might produce in a few million years. Absolutely. As Avi Loeb said on our show recently, well, there is an intelligent life form that has sent probes into outer space and it's us. So there's proof that there could be others too. It it can happen. Yeah. So again, we're talking with Travis Walton and Jennifer Stein. Jennifer was the producer of their documentary, which is called Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. And she was kind enough to reshare parts of that story with us while Travis was having some difficulties entering. So for those of you that are wanting to know more about exactly what happened, that documentary is a really great place for you to go and check it out. And we will use our time with Travis to dive into some current event questions and and other things that are going on. Um, I wanted to ask one quick thing before I send it over to to Tim and Smitty for your guys' questions. We had the joy of listening to your interview with Art Bell back in the 90s, and what a phenomenal interview that was with both you and Mike Rogers. And one thing that Mike said, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think this interview was in the early 90s. Um, but one thing Mike said at that time was, somebody knows something. Somebody has information about what is going on and what we're seeing, and they are slowly releasing that to the public until the public, until they believe the public is ready to know more. Now we're talking well, I, I 20 years ago. I do agree that, you know, our, our um, government and uh, military uh, know a lot more than we do. They may not know everything, but those who are demanding complete uh, disclosure to flip open the books and tell the world everything we have are not understanding that this would put us in a, in a very compromised position concerning our uh, global enemies uh, because they're not going to flip open their books. And as long as uh, our um, military can keep them guessing about what level of technology we might have acquired, uh, we're a lot safer than if uh, we tell them just what the limits are, because uh, these other countries probably have their own um, levels of knowledge about the phenomenon that um, they would uh, compare to us and uh, might might inhibit their desire to uh, uh, attack. Yes. Absolutely. So do you think that we are, as a public, getting closer to being ready to know more with our government now having, you know, Arrow and coming out with 
Well, yeah, you and I and your listeners are all ready. But generally speaking, (laughs) I'm pretty skeptical about much of the rest of the world. Uh, The aliens are looking at humans and uh, observing a bunch of savages. Savages. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are over a hundred wars going on amongst humans at any one time. If you look at entertainment, it's all about who killed who, who's going to kill who, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so so many of them that just result on homicide and depend on that for for the the interest. It's just uh, d- discouraging to think that uh, we have that much of an obsession with uh, things of that nature. Uh, yeah, I, I think the aliens are waiting for us to be ready, but we've got a ways to go. I mean... <laughs> Uh, uh, our better scientists, our more open-minded and thinking people like you and your audience are, are completely ready to communicate with these uh, other civilizations. But so many people on the planet, the first thing they'd want to do is, we want free energy and we want the, the secret mm-hmm. to all your, your weapons. You know, tell us how to make powerful weapons. Uh, You're so right. Weapons would be the first. Of course, if they gave us free energy, that would be a global economic collapse. Uh, you know, petrodollars run the world, and I don't know how they could possibly grant that kind of quote-unquote help without you know, <laughs> doing a tremendous amount of damage. It's true. Yes. It's like, you know, you go into the jungle and there's a bunch of... Uh, um, apes um, having little territorial skirmishes with each other, we say, look, let's help them. Let's, let's give them some <laughs> technology. And, and, you know, I would expect nothing but damage from such a thing. Yes, yeah. let's give these wild apes some weapons, I don't think right? Jane Goodall would yeah. approve of that strategy. <laughs> oh, well, let's see. Let's jump into, um, do you want to get some some hot takes from him, Tim, or some listener questions? Yeah, we do have a listener question here for you, Travis, from listener Sid Fi. So going back to when you exited the ship onto a larger structure, which, you know, we've talked about that in a lot of different possibilities, but our listener wants to know, is it possible that you could have stepped out onto another planet and how profound that might be, and and what are your thoughts on how does it make well, you feel that maybe you're the first I, human I have, on another planet? Yeah, that's possible, or it could have been some sort of um, um, giant spaceship out there somewhere. Could be um, a hidden base here on Earth. I, I I don't know. I couldn't see outside. Mm. The light coming through uh, these panels looked like sunlight, but I really don't know whether it was sunlight or artificial source that uh, seemed like natural light. Right. And speaking of mothership, Travis, and, and we're, we're going to get into some current events with you too, if that's okay. Have you had the chance, you know, we talked about in the 70s, it was kind of a big pill for people to swallow to consider that you might have been on board an alien mothership. But here we are in 2023, and we have Avi Loeb, the Harvard astrophysicist, co-writing a paper with the Pentagon's 
UFO director, UFO investigating director, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, who say, they just come out and say in their paper that alien motherships could be seeding the earth with alien probes. Have you had a chance to read this paper or have you seen about that in the news? No, I haven't read that paper. You know, it, it sounds you know kind of speculative. We need hard data before we, uh, but you know, it's, um, the theory that they would want to take this ecosystem and employ it for themselves or something, you know, an alien takeover. I'm skeptical of that. Um, they've been around here for decades, maybe hundreds of years. And if they wanted to um, remove the humans and use this planet for themselves, it would have happened a long time ago. We'd have never known what hit us. And it's not a matter of uh, uh, American fighter jets uh, having dogfights in the sky with flying saucers. It's, it's absurd. Uh, there's no contest. Uh, the kind of level of intelligence they have, um, it, like I say, no contest. Uh, so obviously, the fact that they haven't done it uh, suggests to me that they don't intend to. I think um, Gene Roddenberry, with the, uh, Star Trek, uh, his uh, creation of uh, the concept of the non-interference directive. So the the series was uh, um, space exploration, but in each case making sure that the um, people on the planet were not aware of this um, craft uh, near near their planet and it makes it makes perfect sense I mean when when um, they go to study the the great apes uh, in the jungle they they try not to influence their behavior they try to observe from afar and uh, not not shape that behavior, just observe it. Oh, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. We have a listener, Nora Lade Swinburne, who says she's also a UFO abductee, and she says she has an implant in her left femur. Have you ever thought that you might have any sort of implants or surgical alterations that were done? Well, I was concerned about that, and I had uh, upper body x-rays in the aftermath of this. And didn't detect anything, uh, much to my relief, but... Uh, I guess so. Other, uh, ...medical uh, tests that were interesting. Um, anomalies in, in the brain scan that uh, uh, subsequent uh, scans didn't... Uh, detect later so uh, there may have been a result of the uh, aftermath of the injury that i experienced there yeah certainly or even the initial shock from the light or the beam that came i would assume that would have some sort of repercussion on your health oh yeah yeah probably at the time it was probably fatal you yeah. know? so right. i was very concerned about negative health effects but i had none you know uh, I worked uh, long hours to just sort of escape thinking about it. I'd worked 12-hour days mm -hmm. for you know, decades, and uh, um, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't even take vacations. Um, 
I would just work through vacations and I never called in sick one time in in all those years. So that was reassuring. So I had asked Jennifer this earlier in that interview that you did with Art Bell, you were promoting the movie Fire in the Sky, half promoting, half telling your own truths of that story. And you mentioned that this was it for you, that you were done talking about it, that you didn't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah, and yeah. After you, have you ever gotten to have that break? Are you, are you feeling like it's resurfacing again? Well, uh, for a while I tried to hide from it, you know, and refused interviews and just didn't want to talk about it. Like I said, working 12 hours a day. But that wasn't working. It, you can, you know, you can run, but you can't hide. You know what I mean? The, I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I wish it never happened, uh, but nobody's going to forget it. So I may as well try to make something good come of it. And if at least educating people to have a more reasonable um, perspective on this phenomenon. Oh, yeah. And Travis, this this is Dr. Mounts, by the way, with All Things Unexplained, speaking to Travis Walton on the phone. I was telling Jennifer earlier that we are so appreciative for you being out there and continuing to tell your story and go on podcasts like this because there's a whole generation of folks out there like myself, like CJ, like Smitty. You know, Fire in the Sky, whilst a departure from the actual events that you experienced, it came out in 1993, and I was a senior in high school. I think Joe Rogan might have been a senior in high school. You know, there's a whole generation of folks here who put you on their Mount Rushmore of ufology. And we really look up to you, and we really appreciate having the chance to hear straight from you about what really happened. Well, thank you uh, for the opportunity to express my thoughts. Um, uh, There's been times I've been tempted to just walk away from it and not talk about it anymore. You know, even change my name or something, but... Uh, you know, the prospect of perhaps having a remake of Fire in the Sky and setting the, uh, the story straight and including some perspectives that I didn't have back at that time. Um, so I'm working on that. What is the one thing that the movie got most wrong out of all the story? Well, um, I think the, the movie makers uh, knew that I wasn't going to like the abduction sequence because it was just so different from what really happened. Uh, when I was received a copy of the script, those pages oh. were not in it. And um, yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons now, but um, I, there it was one scene where the um, actor, when I was on the table, has a membranes over his face and he's struggling to scream through it, struggling to yell. And uh, uh, I thought that was, although it wasn't what happened, that it was probably better at communicating to people the level of panic that not being able to breathe fully um, added to my uh, fear, level of fear. It was just, Nothing can uh, make you more fearful than the feeling of suffocation. But how do you show that on camera? You know, somebody breathing hard and looking scared. Uh, So 
the idea of a membrane to show people how would you feel if you can uh, yell or speak or breathe with this thing over your face. So that was probably a story device that uh, um, yeah. improved on things with, without being accurate at all. Yeah, you mentioned Star Trek, Travis, and interestingly, here we are, 2023, and our pop culture and our news cycles are inundated with interest in UFOs and aliens. And, you know, we're just real curious, and our listeners are curious, what is your take on our current inundation by UFOs from Jeremy Corbell, who's been instrumental in releasing all sorts of classified, potentially UFO videos and photos to Skinwalker Ranch. Now there's a show where they're investigating on the History Channel to Pentagon departments named Arrow investigating UFOs to NASA to military encounters. You know, we can see them on 60 Minutes talking about them to spy balloons getting shot down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to over Super Bowl weekend. We had three UFOs that got shot down by the U.S. military that they still won't reveal any information about. What What's your take well, on this, um, Travis? Um, I think definitely that uh, government knows more than they're letting on. Um, but I think as far as the position of these beings, it's, it's apparent to me that um, they could uh, continue with everything they're doing here and remain completely undetected. I think their technology would allow them to be here and we never know it. The, the frequency of so many sightings that are just at the edge of our ability to confirm in a way that would cause worldwide panic is intentional. That, they, that they're letting us glimpse just to get us to look up and think about the other possibilities. And that's the most they can give us uh, to urge us in the direction of getting outside of ourselves and thinking about where we might be in a million years. Um, it's just too big of a coincidence for them to just be always just a sighting, nothing you can confirm, a, a picture that's not quite good enough to spark this uh, worldwide um, panic. Um, or disrupt things, you know. The non-interference directive is just give them a hint and wait for them to grow up. You know, you're so right, and we have noticed, and I'm curious as to your take on this, you know, everything that we have revealed to us about UAPs, so I'm going to switch to UAPs now to reflect what they're currently telling us. You know, it's all kind of a uh, very... I don't know, kid gloves type of way. They never get into anything, for example, like alien abductions. We don't hear any of our Congress people talking about alien abductions well, or Arrow or NASA. Avoid causing a panic. And, you know, I accepted the term abduction in my own case, but in retrospect, it was uh, more of an ambulance call than an abduction. So uh, maybe. You know, I've heard of other cases where people felt they were abducted 
and then realized later that, you know, medical issues they had had been resolved, much to their surprise, wow. and, you know, that they didn't realize that that might have been a side effect of having been taken. But uh, I, I try not to comment too much on other uh, reports because um, that's that was my major uh, objection to people um, coming off as experts about my uh, case when they didn't even have the facts. So, you know, unless I've investigated a particular incident or case, um, it would be wrong for me to comment on those things, especially in in the position I occupy now that I don't want to bias anybody's thinking about things and uh, try to plead with people on any issue, including, you know, what foods to eat or what uh, what uh, uh, law to vote for or whatever. Get the facts first. People, you know, come up with opinions and they don't even know what they're talking about. Come on, be a bit, at least make it informed. You can have any opinion you want, but at least at least don't uh, guess about what we're talking about. That's great advice, and Travis. And Jennifer, we would love to get y'all's hot takes on a few topics around ufology and perhaps the future of ufology as well as we near the end of the show. And Jennifer, you're you're welcome to chime in on some of these too. But Travis, I don't think you heard this, but part of our prep for the show was here in an interview you did with Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM. I think that was via phone. Yeah, that, but was, that was one of the classic interview yes and, you know he he was a very very good interviewer and uh, he, he made some great comments to to my skeptics huh, that were pretty um telling what did you think of art bell because a lot of us really look up to art bell and his role on coast to coast am yeah he was a pioneer great a great man yeah that's a good hot take <laughs> And what do you think about, you know, soon after Art Bell, George Knapp came into his role with Coast Coast AM and it was integral in bringing out Bob Lazar's story. What do you make of Bob Lazar and what he is told about, I believe it's S2 or, or a very close proximity to Area 51? Well, I don't know. And I, I, refuse to comment on cases I haven't investigated, but I do know a few things about the Bob Lazar situation that, I, you know, I'll just leave it to people to uh, conclude what they want about it. But uh, um, I knew some people that knew him, and they used to go out uh burn a tree out in the desert and drink beer and visit and talk, you know, party out there. And they knew that he worked at area 51 and it was no big deal. He hadn't revealed any of this information yet. So to them, it was not news. So as much as I admire Stanton Friedman, him saying that he was skeptical of, um, of him because, um, he wasn't in the phone book, and I'm going, wait a minute, come on. If he's working on secret stuff, then that might be a good reason not to put him in the phone book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, one other thing. Um, 
he did a um, well, he marketed a thing through the Tester Model Corporation, uh, which you know normally made model airplanes and uh, sports cars and stuff for kids to put together. It was a, a kit for uh, a UFO flying saucer, and that oh. one thing that was a product that they came up with resembles um, the craft that we saw in the woods there more than anything else that I've seen. So other than that, I don't know too much about Bob Lazar. I mean, was at one or two events where he was, and we didn't have a chance to speak. So I don't know anything about it. That's too bad that you didn't get to speak to Bob. That would have been a great conversation to be a fly on the wall. Floor. Right. Meeting, <laughs> meeting of the minds. <laughs> so, so Travis and Jennifer, not too far from where, your incident, Travis, took place in Arizona since, I guess you would have to call it the ultimate in all of ufology, and that is Roswell, New Mexico, where something happened in 1947, and perhaps it has sparked all of this. Who knows? But I would love to know what Yeah, I've, I've take spoken there at Roswell uh, on the anniversary the last six or seven years, and and I'll be speaking there again this coming uh, July. And what do you think happened in 1947, Travis? Well, I'd, I'd say that it was a, a weather balloon or something like that. <laughs> it's a pretty lame cover-up because <laughs> nobody's going to mistake. It's like in my case where they try to say, oh, what they really saw was a, a fire watch tower. <laughs> Absolutely no similarity not no not even close in distance or appearance or anything it's just something to say and for people who don't want to believe things all they need is something of that nature just just give me a reason to not believe and and there mm -hmm. they go it, it's like so many things in today's world people begin with a conclusion and then look for facts to support it no what you do is you gather the facts and then weigh the evidence and, and then make a decision and uh, form an opinion. That's right. And we have a listener question from listener Amber Dahl for you. I think it's a great question for you, Travis. What do you think about the possibility? And, of course, this is supported from recent uh, papers from the Pentagon and, and again, asked various astrophysicists, what's the possibility that some of these extraterrestrials could be using our oceans. Oh, I think that's definitely likely, probably, uh, you know, if they can travel in, in space and be completely independent of the external environment to, to you know, it'd be a perfect cover to be underwater. Yeah. So for those of you that are tuning in, we are talking with Travis Walton and Jennifer Stein. We did get Travis Walton on the phone. If you're watching live, please stop texting Dr. Mounts so that we don't have to hear his phone chirp. He can't turn Sorry. that off because we have Travis Walton through his phone. So. It's not helping um, that the NFL draft is tonight, and I don't know why my iPhone wants to tell me. That? No, I don't know why my iPhone <laughs> wants to. Maybe I can. I don't know why it wants to tell me every single person that gets drafted in the NFL draft tonight, but it's trying to. <laughs> it's, um, it's talk about how far technology has <laughs> so, come. So, huh? so this is definitely a question for, uh, both of you, Travis and Jennifer, because Jennifer, I know you've done re some research into this area that. 
What's your hot take on this notion of crop circles? That's a long uh, chat for, for for me to answer. <laughs> that's, that's, um, well, we definitely know that some of them are people, uh, you know, faking them. People have said, I fake that, you know. But again, like I was saying, some people, uh, you know, they so want to disbelieve that they'll even fake the reason to disbelieve. <laughs> Who knows? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make sense to me what a crop circle would be for. But um, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't investigated these cases, so I don't, I don't know. I do know that the uh, presence of the craft in our case had an effect on the uh, growth of the trees nearby. Oh, that's right. So there could be a, a relative effect that way. Oh, yes. You spoke to Art Bell about that. I think Mike talked extensively about that with Art Bell and the tree rings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we also covered that in a section in the Travis Walton documentary. So people can see that. There's also short little clips of that at the website, uh, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. Yeah, which is actually some uh, newer information because at the, when the when the effect was first discovered, we just thought it was just one tree, the near one nearest where there. But to discover that a ring of these trees exhibited this effect on the side uh, facing the craft, that was the clincher on on that whole uh, bit of data. Yeah, you know, and speaking of trees and sort of this um, other older, sometimes ancient evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. There's a show now on Netflix called Ancient Apocalypse. It's been described by some academics as the most dangerous show on Netflix, but they go extensively into the evidence of ancient civilizations that came before us and their encounters with, with other beings and what did both of you make of ancient aliens? Well, I, I was on the show Ancient Aliens a time or two, and that was a very fascinating experience. But, you know, like I say, they've been coming here a very long time. And uh, perhaps you go back far enough and people didn't have the um, framework to even know what they were looking at. So they would call it something else, you know angels or demons or something of that sort but uh, um, they've been they've been coming here for a very long time I was just going to say I uh, spent a lot of time and read uh, most all the work of Zachariah Sitchin and did some film work for Zachariah when he was still alive and I think there's a lot of Sumerian evidence that there were city-states kingships set up by beings that may well have come here from another place. I now speak on Gobekli Tepe and even Klaus Schmidt, who was the key archeologist who uncovered Gobekli Tepe and tried to make sense of the drawings and the motifs that are carved on those megalithic standing stones that form stone enclosures like Stonehenge sort of, but there are multiple ones in Gobekli. He even thought about the cattle and grain text that are in the Sumerian records. I think they're on display possibly at the uh, 
Pennsylvania Museum, University of Pennsylvania, uh, or Archaeological Museum in Philadelphia, where I used to live. And those cattle and grain texts talk about two beings, um, Lahar and Ashnan, who came from an area high, a high abode, whether it's in the mountains or whether it's above the earth, we don't know, but it's called the Duku. And they came to earth, it says, bringing the knowledge of um, grain, you know, the, the hybridization of grains. And we can trace now with genetics the original cereal grains we use today, like barley and wheat, coming right from that area in Turkey near near where Gobekli Tepe is. So is what what you know, is that text, the cattle and grain text, a memorial to this bringing of this knowledge to Earth? You know, maybe. Well, yeah, you know, a little bit of tampering going on there with, you know, the <laughs> non-interference directive, but still things uh, in the Amazon. They're discovering uh, evidence that what was for many years just considered to be dense jungle undeveloped forever they're finding that you know in the distant past that it had been clear-cut and and farmed on a large scale supporting a great population so that was a surprise there yeah and that it would be an ethical dilemma you know if you were just a neutral outside observer unbeknownst to those being observed and you witnessed this population or species about to say go extinct what you know how long would you continue yeah, to yeah, observe little nudges not 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 uh, overt interference not taking over but help out now and then right and i just have one more hot take for you travis before we move on during your art bell interview i believe mike alluded to some potential encounters with what might be described as men in black or some shadowy government agents perhaps have you had any dealings with such as that nothing i can prove but yeah i think they uh, would undoubtedly have an intense interest mm. and uh, probably <laughs> they could probably go a long ways towards uh uh, helping me prove my case, but uh, are staying out of it. <laughs> we had a, an interesting listener question come in. And this is something that we talk about all the time about how much our technology has developed since, you know, the 1960s, what have you. Um, it sounds like when you were on the craft, that the technology you were witnessing was far more advanced than technology that we had here at the time. And one of our listeners, Amber Dahl, was wondering, are there now technologies that you are seeing existing here on Earth that are comparable to anything that you saw while on board? Well, that would be speculation, but yeah, there, there could be things that um, have been developed. Uh, Maybe they're just watching us come up with this stuff on our own and hoping that we don't come up with something that's too self-destructive. This AI stuff mm -hmm. is scary. Yes. Terrifying. I'll, 
I'll add to that. Yeah. I think um, there was like a proximity sensor to some extent when Travis walked into what he calls the navigation room, for lack of a better understanding, the, the large round room with the egg chair in it that turned into a planetarium. So as he got close to the chair, yeah. it turned into a planetarium of sorts. You know, and but it was well. That's uh, reasonable speculation. You know, it, it could be a way of seeing where it was for close quarter navigation maneuvering. I mean, and then when you were on the outside of this room, Travis, around the edge, it seemed like a solid room. Correct. Yeah. So there was some sort of sensor, so perhaps some technology allowed the observer from certain position to see through the walls of the craft. Right. Or maybe the image was transmitted to the in interior somehow. Were there any planets visible when it turned into the planetarium? Oh, that's a great question. No, just points of light. Just points of light. Nothing I recognized as a planet. No constellations I recognized. But... Yeah. Right. And I'm sure you were only you only really recall maybe two hours total, correct, of the five days that you we're gone. Yeah, just just that one brief period. Yeah. So here we're all trying to get you to recall minute details of something that's probably very foggy in your in your existence. Yeah, completely obscured by the dominating emotion of absolute terror. Of course. Uh, pain of injury, etc. Yes. So I will admit that you know, had you asked me 10 years ago if I believed in aliens, UFOs, etc., I would have said, you know, no way, not not even a thought on my radar, right? I would find the one reason to dismiss it and I would dismiss it. And I've met so many people now that have had these really profound experiences in these stories and it is hard to deny that they're reality. And um, I've just had an awakening, I will call it. And most of the people that we've had on this show have talked about their experiences in a very beautiful way, in a way that it has um, enlightened them. And it has been more of a positive experience than a negative one, because we do see in sort of movies and what have you that these experiences are always meant to be terrifying. But most everyone we have talked to have, have had more profound experiences than that and, and hearing you talk about them bringing you up to heal you and to make you better would you say that this was other than sort of your your backlash from people was it a, a positive experience for you well i try to interpret it in that way you know to, certainly less less traumatic than I thought at first. You know, the idea that it might have been a rescue, making up for my own foolishness to, to get so close to get a, a place where uh, some accidental discharge may have occurred. Um, um, that's that's a better take than than like firing a weapon at me and maybe perceiving my approach as threatening or something. That that doesn't make sense. Were you more apprehensive about going out, actually, back to work after this happened, or did you go back? Yeah, yeah, I found that uh, a, a definite obstacle to um, overcome, and uh, yeah. 
I started carrying a rifle with me for all the good that would do. But, uh, you know, I, I was determined to overcome that fear, and, and uh, I did. Well, I'm in, in the daytime, anyway. I didn't like get being out there at night if, uh, yeah. if I had a truck break down or get stuck or something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's understandable. Travis, I just wondered one thing, and Jennifer kind of gave us some insight, but going back to the very beginning here, when you were knocked over by the craft, and Mike and the other guys, for whatever psychological reasons, um, flight or fight or fear, they decided to leave in that moment. How do, What's always been your take on their initial reaction to do that totally understandable you know anybody who said oh well gee some friends they are you know to take off and leave you uh, no from from their point of view the only sensible thing was you know if this is uh, a weapon that, that you know could kill people and they they thought i'd just been killed you know they they witnessed uh Somebody being killed, what what good would it do to jump out and run over there and get killed, too? So, you know, I, I think uh, uh, that it was understandable that they would flee. But at the same time, I give them a great deal of credit that they did come back to see if they could rescue me or, you know, that that I was in a revivable condition. So um, they, they all get A's for, for courage. Now, in the movie, it was... Uh, they didn't want to come back, and Mike said, well, I'm going to go back anyway, and left them uh, waiting beside the road. But no, when he offered to let, let them not go back, they all elected to stay in the truck, <laughs> which uh, is much more sensible. There's no reason that they would feel safer waiting beside the road for Mike to go check on my condition. Right. They, they all went back. And I could tell you, we could hear in my opinion, the sincerity in Mike's voice as he talked about that with Art Bell. So I think that his sincerity and, and his loyalty, you know, it, and his friendship, it definitely came through. And just one more thing I wondered for you, Travis, you've had a lot of time to reflect on this incident. Okay, here y'all are out here logging, working on your job, and, and there is a UFO out there on the ground or perhaps hovering above the ground. After all this time, what do you think it was actually even doing out there to start with? Well, that's speculation, but, you know, learning years later that the, that, that area has the highest frequency of lightning strikes of any place in the continental United States outside of the Everglades, which is over water, led me to think more about what this high frequency of lightning might have had something to do with it, you know? And um, when lightning hits these trees, it doesn't just automatically burn up the forest. What it does is it uh, uses the tree as a lightning rod to, to ground out, and it travels through the bark, the, the moist layer under the bark, because the inner part of the tree is pretty much dead, you know, it's the living part of the tree is in the surface. So the electricity travels down through the bark 
and instantly turns uh, that that sap to steam, which explodes and blasts a, a strip off the side of the tree. And you can you can you know uh, walk down the rim road there. And if you if you're within sight of a tree that's been hit, you can see the next one that's been hit with, within sight probably. So it's a high frequency. If, if, if you don't want to go up there where the incident happened, uh, the Heber uh, Chamber of Commerce has one of those trees right in the front yard. It's got a strip of bark blasted off of it like that. But it's still growing. It's healthy and everything. It's just that that's what happens when lightning strikes. But the, but the curiosity was that uh, a side effect of gr- lightning striking the ground is the creation of unique crystals. Oh. Crystals that are not formed geologically. You've got millions of degrees and millions of volts forming very unique structures. If you'll uh, see the illustrations that they came up with on the Joe Rogan show, uh, pictures of the these crystals, which are called fulgurite. Um, now, there could be some valuable um, purpose for them to be in the area hmm. uh, researching these or, or uh, harvesting them or something. Uh, it's just speculation, but uh, it is, you know, a rare coincidence that over the entire United States, uh, to have one area have the highest frequency of lightning strikes. I've even speculated that the blast of energy that hit me might have been some sort of secondary discharge, that they had picked up some kind of energy that when I got too close, it just leaped to me through ground. That's amazing. And probably had fatal consequences. Yeah. We've had guests mm-hmm. on this show that operate a crystal, crystal mine in Arkansas, and they have had inc- legitimate UFO experiences there, enough so to get um, Josh Gates with Expedition Unknown out there and even left, you know, physical evidence. Um, you know, magnet it magnetized different things in the area and and um yeah we we totally get that a lot about the potential for crystals being involved wow well incredible we are just so thankful to have you guys here and share this story with us and for those of you that are joining later or didn't get to hear the entire thing you can certainly watch the documentary the film's website is travisvaultinthemovie.com there's interviews with everybody that was involved the eyewitnesses i think one of the things that makes this story so compelling and so believable are those eyewitnesses the people that were there to witness what happened to you travis and jennifer we thank you for bringing that story to life for us and before we go before we sign off here for good travis for those that are skeptics of ufos skeptics of abductions what thought would you want to leave them with well like i said get the facts first now not every report is an extraterrestrial i think people do make mistakes uh misidentify things that happens but 
the skeptics, when they can seize upon an example and say, see, we proved it with something else, that doesn't disprove the entire phenomena at all. Uh, failure to prove does not disprove. <laughs> that, mm. It's just a silly uh, uh, error of logic that people uh, make. Travis, Travis actually makes a great comment in the film, which I really love and is one of the real moments of humor. He says, uh, I wouldn't wish this experience on anyone except maybe a skeptic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be helpful, helpful for them. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be. We're all skeptics till it happens to us, right? Nope. That's for sure. Well, thank you to all of our listeners who tuned in, who shared their comments and questions with us. And thank you to Jennifer and Travis for joining us. It's been a wonderful, enlightening evening. We certainly thank you for sharing your story with us. And Smitty, why don't you go ahead and take us on out? I just want to say, when I watch Fire in the Sky, there would be no absolute knowledge that I would ever be talking <laughs> to Travis Walton. This has been, this has been phenomenal. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, and uh, I hope I've left some food for thought. You definitely have, and thank you, Jennifer. And be happy, be strange, and listen to all things unexplained. You've been listening to All Things Unexplained. If you liked this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. If you would like to hear more All Things Unexplained, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show depends on the support of listeners like you. Find us on Venmo under the business accounts at Bigfoot UFO. If you can't get enough of us, please check us out at allthings-unexplained.com. A special thanks to our producer, director, sound mixer, editor, and the man who wears far too many hats. No, seriously, he wears a lot of hats, Dr. Tim Mounts. Without you, we couldn't keep the lights on. Thanks for listening to All Things Unexplained.